0: Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. In our previous episode, we began exploring the broad topic area of depression. Part one specifically focused on what depression is, whereas part two, which is what you're listening to today, is going to explore more of what we can do about it. So to help us do that, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, and I'm really, really glad we're talking about this topic, including what
0: to do about it. Yeah, I think that it's definitely been top of mind for both of us as something that we've long wanted to explore, and this felt like a good moment for it.
1: Yeah, and keeping in in mind and, frankly, in heart, so many people who are grappling with depressed mood, it's invisible. That's one of the things that's really poignant about it. The person inside themselves is experiencing it, but from the outside, usually... They're going about their day. They might even be reasonably sociable. They might seem like they're enjoying their life. But deep down inside, uh, behind that placid or neutral or happy face, uh, they just don't feel good at all. And frankly, when I look back at my own childhood, uh, I can see that my mother may well have had depressed mood a significant amount of the time, maybe warded off pushed away some of the time, other times really gripping her, probably never what could be called severe clinical depression. And yet I think a significant factor, certainly for her suffering it and to be crystal clear, not blaming her for that, really for me, it sits with compassion and also reflection and
0: attempts at understanding my own life history. Yeah, I think that's a really poignant reflection. And I definitely later in this episode want to get into those familial relationships and what we can do inside of them to help others who might be going through those experiences or to reduce the impact, frankly, on other members of our family when we're going through them. So to dive right in here, if somebody would either describe themselves as having Depression in some form, of course, in part one, we explored really a lot of nuance and the differences between these various categories. So I'm just going to use depressed mood as a kind of blanket statement that includes a lot of these things within it. If someone would describe themselves as having depressed mood or would you know maybe think of a family member or a loved one, a good friend themselves as also having depressed mood, what are the different ways that somebody can intervene and try to create some positive change there? So I wanna, first of all,
1: set the table by talking about different types of causes that lead to depressed mood. And we talked about those in the previous episode. Very simply, I think it's useful to distinguish between causes out in the world, in the body, and in the mind. And in terms of out in the world, those kind of causes include situations in which a person is in poverty, they're dealing with really horrible Life circumstances, they've had a recent loss. Perhaps in their relationships out there in the world, they're in relationship with someone who is abusive, or they're worried sick about somebody that they love. These are causes out in the world. Then in the body, we have causes like anemia or chronic pain or an inflammatory condition, or any other form of dysregulation in the body, including hormonal dysregulation that may well have depressed mood as a symptom. That's another kind of cause. And then we have causes loosely in the mind, both originating in the present and potentially those that are casting a long shadow based on the history of the individual, including, for example, a history of trauma. And so to begin with here, I think as a practicing clinician kind of person, I'm looking for low-hanging fruit. In other words, if I know that there are causes in the mind of this person, but they are longstanding, fairly deep, grounded maybe in their history, but meanwhile they're suffering chronic pain, or they're grappling with some kind of inflammatory condition that releases what are called cytokines—these chemical messengers that then go up into the brain and can be one of the major sources of depression. This is called a cytokine. Theory of depression, C-Y-T-O-K-I-N-E, cytokine. You can look it up. Well, it may be that addressing the chronic pain or dealing with the inflammatory condition is the lowest hanging fruit we can jump right on top of. Or maybe for this person, their depressed mood has to do with a really uh, crummy situation at work that has seemed kind of hopeless. And frankly, it would serve them well to find a different job if they possibly can. And I'm not trying to swerve away from addressing the mind. I'm just sort of naming this. Sometimes it's really helpful to address situations. My specialty and my focus is between the ears as it were. And yet it's really important to, you know, to take into account the larger picture. Okay, now we're going to talk about the mind. So here's where it gets really, really interesting in terms of what are the factors in a person's mind that are depressing their mood And what can you do about them? And what is the
0: range that you're dealing with here? Yeah, to touch on that for a moment, your big underlying practice is called taking in the good. The basic idea behind it is that you either create or observe the existence of a positive experience. You really stick with that experience. You enrich it, you absorb it, and then over time by doing that and reinforcing it internally, you can actually create a lasting change in neural structure and function. You can actually build the brain from the inside out simply through the power of our positive experiences. Really great stuff. One of the big challenges of depression is that identifying, sticking with, enriching, and absorbing positive experiences is really, really hard how would you suggest using taking in the good for somebody who has a depressed mood or can it be used at all, do you think?
1: It's a great question. And in effect, it's a doorway into a broader consideration of different categories, really, of helpful intervention, things you can do uh, for depressed mood. So in this context, let's consider clinical depression. People, if they haven't already, would be advised to listen to the previous podcast about this topic, uh, in which we set the table and explored the range, really, of depressed mood and different subtypes and so forth. But let's say fundamentally that someone is depressed. Many of the clinically uh, researched interventions for mild to moderate clinical depression, involve what's called behavioral activation, where you get people to do things of one kind or another. And then implicitly in these protocols, which have some good evidence behind them, detail the evidence, generally speaking, for the effect sizes and the durability of gains due to psychotherapeutic or broadly mental interventions for depression are generally more impressive than the evidence for pharmaceutical interventions for depression. Mm. I'm not speaking here against uh, medications and we're generally, as a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, I'm kind of careful about what I say specifically about medications per se. But the point is, the evidence basis for uh, mental interventions of various kinds, including targeted psychotherapies, is really generally robust. That doesn't mean it's perfect. doesn't mean that therapy is a, is a guaranteed cure, but the odds are pretty good. All right. That said... Many of the uh, clinically oriented psychotherapeutic methods for depression involve uh, behavioral activation and then implicitly the internalization of those experiences, presumably inside the normal frame of science, presumably those mental interventions are leaving lasting traces behind of altered neural structure and function which is the basis for alterations in a person's experiences. In other words, alterations in mind. That's the basic idea there. So if you think about it, in many well-established therapies for depression is this overall framework that we could call taking in the good. In other words, in a two-stage fundamental process, having beneficial experiences and helping them one way or another be installed, be internalized as a lasting change in the brain and therefore the mind rather than merely a passing experience. The problem is though, with people who are severely depressed, number one, it's almost impossible for them to have a beneficial experience. Number two, they don't tend to register those experiences. Sometimes depression has been called a learning disorder. And that term is in air quotes because if you have situations where people are having beneficial experiences, But they're not moving the needle of mood. In effect, they're not learning in the broadest sense from those beneficial experiences. So with someone who is really severely depressed, that's where, frankly, I think more physiologically oriented interventions make a lot of sense. They are the first line there including things that are increasingly researched that involve electroconvulsive therapy or different kinds of magnetic-based brain stimulation. I mean, these are cutting-edge interventions. They're very powerful, so therefore we should be very careful. But that said, there are these possibilities. Also, I want to add the point that if people, particularly moderate to severely depressed, and someone, depending sometimes on the culture, they feel very helpless inside and very self-critical. As you pointed out for us in the last podcast episode about this, they feel worthless and dejected. And so if the call to them to help them from a well-meaning family member or psychotherapist is to try to get something going in their mind, they may feel defeated before they even begin. And also they may be actually defeated when they try. Because trying to get anything good going in their mind is like trying to light a fire with wet wood. And then they get even more dejected as a result. So it's an important caution. And this was actually pointed out to me by Mark Williams of Oxford, who was, is one of the founders of cognitive and particularly mindfulness-based approaches for depression, that it's actually often safer to begin with simply mindfulness alone particularly in the form of a spacious acceptance of what one is experiencing to interrupt depressive reactions to what one is experiencing. In other words, if one can simply rest in a spaciousness of awareness, that itself can be beneficial because it starts to associate this spaciousness and undisturbed quality of awareness, which can be experienced as having some kind of positive quality to it, that spaciousness of awareness then starts getting associated to the negative material, the depressed mood, in these mindfulness-based approaches. That itself is quite helpful. Also, as people identify increasingly with and and abide increasingly as that spaciousness of awareness, they're more able to let uh, passing experiences of sadness or dejection or worthlessness or self-criticism, et cetera, come and go without chasing after them and getting preoccupied with them. And that itself is, is really helpful. And establishing that spaciousness of mindful awareness, sustained present moment awareness is a relatively easy task for just about anyone to do. It's less demanding if you think about it than to either mobilize some kind of beneficial experience or even more challenging cognitively and otherwise to sustain a beneficial experience while also using various methods that we've explored to increase the internalization plausibly of that particular experience. That's more demanding. And therefore, because it's more demanding, it's easier to fail. So I think it's safest to start with these very mindfulness-oriented methods I think it's also relatively safe to begin with what are called interpersonally oriented methods. Social support is a major factor in the treatment of depression. The feeling that others are with you, they're not judging you for being blue. They're not making you a problem. They're not hassling you or harassing you to get happy because they'd rather have their happy husband or wife back or happy mom back. They're not bugging you but they're loving you. They're with you in this journey. Social support is really, really, really important here. And it's also fairly low risk. Just have it happening without demanding that the person who's depressed acknowledge it or be grateful for it or suddenly change overnight as a result of it. But just implementing it in the network of the person's life can also be relatively low risk and really helpful. And then the last thing I'll say, Is about the research about mindfulness based prevention of relapse. This is a critically important point. Clinical depression is defined in terms of episodes. Episodes end. Now, the ending of the episode may be a return to a broad sense of dysthymic disorder, the blues, and a life that we wouldn't want to have for ourselves and we wouldn't have for those we care about, but at least the episode has ended. The key question is how to prevent the return of another episode of clinical depression. And one of the dangers in episodes of clinical depression is they, and the term is kindle, sometimes used, they kindle like a fire. They kindle future episodes of clinical depression. In other words, the more episodes of clinical depression you've had in your past, the more likely it is you'll have another one. So one of the key issues, once you get someone out of, or once they move out of with grace and who knows what, an episode of clinical depression, how do you prevent relapse? And the dirty little secret is that a lot of the methods that we use to treat clinical depression are useful episodically, and yet they're not very good at preventing relapse. And so what can we do? And one of the interesting findings is mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapies for depression that are oriented around the prevention of relapse, no longer falling back into that, you know, really, really difficult pit.
0: All right. So what's an example of some of the ways that somebody might use mindfulness to either work with a current experience they're having of depressed mood, or as you are saying, to prevent relapse?
1: Yeah. I would encourage people to take a look at the work of Mark Williams, Mm -hmm. Zindel Teasdale and others who have really developed wonderful approaches here that are very humane and relatively low risk and clinically really quite investigated. To put it kind of experientially, there you are, you're depressed. Can you be mindful of the sense of depression? Can you rest increasingly in a sense of? awareness of depression right there to comment you're starting to disidentify from the depression itself and you're resting in and identifying increasingly with simply being aware knowing and letting go knowing and letting go and abiding in the knowing letting go and it's a warm-hearted knowing. It's helpful to bring in, again, if it doesn't feel burdensome, to the extent it feels kind of natural, a sort of tenderness or warmth. This is where self-compassion comes in as a really useful resource for depressed mood. You're kind of very gently opening to that. You might have a gentle feeling of companions with you in your mindfulness. Your dog is with you. Your cat is with you. You might have internal so-called benefactors who are with you, caring beings. Again, not turning that into a project. The simplest doable level that you can do. So you're rested in that awareness. And then there are the different elements. Then also you can start to deconstruct depression. If depression feels brick-like, congealed, and static, and you're identified with it, that's really a pickle. But if you can step back and look at it, oh, these are the body sensations of depression. There is depression. There is depression. It has causes. It is a presence in awareness. I do not wish it. I would not wish it for others. That said, it is here. Okay, this is what the feeling in the body is like. Heaviness, weightiness, fatigue, fogginess, slumping. All right. This is the emotional aspect of depression. ah, oh, sadness, guilt, worthlessness, dejection. Oh. These are the cognitive elements of depression. We haven't spoken much about that. Cognitive elements are really, really important, including cognitive elements that are catastrophizing or which emphasize a sense of helplessness. Oh, there's nothing I could do. It's hopeless. I'll never get out of this. Oh, that's another aspect of depression. So there you are witnessing it. You're disengaged from the bleak movie of depression. And you're sitting back 20 rows, hopefully with some friends nearby, watching the movie. That makes an enormous difference in and of itself. And then also when you do that, let's say you've come out of the the worst of an episode of clinical depression, and you're kind of reestablishing a different equilibrium of mood for yourself. And then that depressive thought comes back. I'm worthless. It's hopeless. No one will ever love me. Or that characteristic weighty feeling in your body, I mean, with a little nausea associated with it in the pit of your stomach. Okay, there it is, right? What often will happen is people who are chronically depressed is they will get preoccupied with those early warnings of depressed mood, but in their preoccupation with them, they get trapped in them. They get glued to them, which then initiates that downward spiral. On the other hand, if a person can be with, this is a the theme that we've explored of the three great ways to practice with your mind, you know, let it be, let it go, let it in. If you just simply let it be, uh, as you're coming out of an episode of depressed mood or, you know, you're six months or a year away from one, but then kind of stuff's coming up again. If you can observe it mindfully, if you can witness it mindfully, then you're less likely to get sucked back into it.
0: We'll be right back to the show in just a minute, but first a word from this week's sponsors. Terms like the microbiome have gone mainstream, and it's great that there's more awareness about the importance of gut health and how we can support it by taking a good probiotic. Not all probiotics are created equal, and that's why I'm happy to be partnering with Seed. Seed is proud to be backed by science, lots of science. They collaborated with leading scientists to create their DS01 Daily Symbiotic. It's a broad-spectrum, two-in-one, probiotic and prebiotic that includes a proprietary formula of 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains. I take DS01 daily in the morning, and as a guy who has taken a lot of probiotics in his life, one of the things I really appreciated about it is it doesn't have that weird probiotic taste. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com beingwell and use code 25 being well to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash beingwell code 25beingwell. Work often means hours a day sitting in a chair, and research has suggested that prolonged sitting poses all kinds of health risks. One of the best purchases I've made over the last few years is getting a standing desk, it's absolutely transformed my workday, I totally love it, and I got mine from Uplift Desk. So when Uplift reached out recently to sponsor the podcast, I was totally thrilled. If you'd like to try one out, visit UpliftDesk.com slash BeingWell for 5% off your order. It's really a great product. I use the V2 two-leg configuration for my desk, that's where I work every day and record the podcast from, but they have so many different options for people. Over a million customers have chosen Uplift Desk for their innovative product designs, free 30-day returns, which includes free return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Their pricing is also really competitive, and if you're trying to save some money, you can just buy the legs alone. Go to upliftdesk.com beingwell for 5% off your order. That's up, desk.com beingwell. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. I'm always looking for ways to get more protein and particularly more healthy protein into my diet, and IQ Bar has been a really good fit for me. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text being well to 64000. One of the reasons that the bars have been so great for me is because they're entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, and artificial sweeteners. And you can refuel smarter with IQ Bar's ultimate sampler pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products, plus you can get free shipping as well. To get your 20% off, just text BEINGWELL to 64,000. Get your discount. Text being well to 64,000. That's B E I N G W E L L to 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com beingwell. So those sound like great soft psychological interventions, particularly just the broad usage of mindfulness as a way of recognizing our internal states, coming more into experience with them, and therefore, hopefully moving into maybe a little bit more of a positive acceptance of them, not necessarily in the manner of saying that depressed mood's a wonderful thing, I'm just going to accept myself for as I am, but rather uh, that idea that the first real step to recovering from something is acknowledging that it exists. As we spoke about extensively with Galen Ferguson about the topic of fear, that one of the best ways to begin interacting with fear is by acknowledging its existence. What are some maybe firmer psychological interventions, for lack of a better way of putting it, that exist outside of simple mindfulness that somebody could do inside of themselves?
1: Great question. So I'll tick through multiple ones. And often these are done in a therapeutic context, often actually in the real world. You know, I think the lifetime usage rate of psychotherapy of one session is something like 4% in America. Mm. But as we've spoken of, the lifetime prevalence of depressed mood, clinical depression is 10%. So that means that roughly, you know, half the people who get depressed are never going to go see a therapist. So what do you do about it? All right. Self-compassion wonderful resources there encourage you to take a look at the work of Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer mindful self-compassion also i want to give a serious shout out for Paul Gilbert a wonderful english academic deep deep practitioner and researcher who's developed uh, compassion-based psychotherapy which is initially uh, grounded in helping people who are clinically depressed and beginning the movement into a warm-heartedness and supportiveness applied to oneself rather than harsh attacks, particularly for people who've grown up with or been in a culture of harsh attacks on, on, on themselves. So self-compassion and compassion-oriented experience is really important. Another exercise, movement. Exercise is a major intervention for depressed mood, and a lot of studies, frankly, show that exercise of various kinds um, are just as effective for mild to moderate clinical depression as uh, medications are. Another intervention is to activate in various ways that have to do with a sense of agency, because learned helplessness is also a major factor of clinical depression. So do things, you know. Plant a flower, get a dog. Uh, you're right. Uh, start cooking more. Move. Get out. Uh, so many clinical interventions for depression and well-meaning, you know, common sense interventions are to go to the house of the person who's depressed, open the curtains, and start making the bed. Get them out of bed. Make the bed. Make a meal. Go for a walk. Not. This is really important. Not so much that's over the top and puts them back into that depressed mode because they just can't do it. It has to be paced. It needs to be in that kind of sweet spot of that it's a stretch, but it's not oppressive or overwhelming or dictatorial, right? But some kind of behavioral activation, really, really, really useful. Another one, contribute. I want to be really clear about this because a fair number of people who are uh, have dysthymic disorder or even kind of walking wounded of mild to moderate clinical depression are mothers, including with younger children. And they are already being called, for example, to pour out, pour out, pour out. And that's often a major factor in developing depressed mood over time. Really important to deal with. That's her, you know, the first book I wrote, was focused on um, mother nurture, including its exploration of what could be called legitimately, I think, a depleted mother syndrome that many women transit through, many mothers transit through, and some get stuck there. So my point here about contributing needs to be held in context. If the contributing makes you just feel more fatigued than ever, or because you're so fatigued as part of your symptom picture in depression, you just can't mobilize to contribute. Well, being called to contribute in some way can make you even more depressed. So with these pitfalls kind of marked and named, doing little things that give you a feeling of you matter, you're helping, you're doing something. Keep it simple, right? Go to the Humane Society and just sit there for an hour a week petting that cat or half an hour or 20 minutes a week where you just, they let the you know the animal sit in your lap and you pet them and you give them your love. And you feel like you still have something good inside you that's, that that can be given out into the world. That's very reparative for many, many people, particularly in the milder to moderate you know, end of the spectrum.
0: So that's great. That's really useful. A variety of different ways to intervene here. But of course, one of the hallmarks of depression is not really wanting to do anything or not really wanting to do any of those things or you start doing them and you feel like it's not very useful. So you stop or you do it two or three times and you go, uh, this didn't really solve my problem. So you stop. So how do you deal with that motivational problem?
1: It's absolutely at the crux. And it's a core issue. That's why as a therapist, I'd rather have a client who's angry than depressed. Mm. With anger, there's energy. And sometimes as a detail, one of the things that's really useful for people who are depressed is to reclaim their anger. Their anger at how they've been treated in the present. They're anger about how they've been treated in the past. Their anger at their circumstance in life. And maybe that anger takes more of the form of a firiness. Like I've just had it up to here with feeling like crap. Just that, just that. Boy, if I have a client who just says that, I'm jumping out of my chair cheering. Yes, yes, yes. And so you're right for us. Absolutely. So I want to turn it back to you just very briefly. Mm-hmm. If you're in situations where you're having a slump, you're not clinically depressed, sure, but you're just not motivated. You don't really want to do the thing, even though you know you ought to do the thing, whatever the thing is. All right, back to you, Obi-Wan. <laughs> well, how do you do it? Well, how do you get yourself out of that slump in maybe lower grade ways? Because those lower grade ways are very applicable to the deep slump of clinical depression.
0: So one of the big things that we're likely to talk about in a future episode we're going to do on bipolar disorder is the importance of building effective habits. Mm. Because that disorder in particular, which is, it's fair to say, in the family of depression, is really about regulation and about regulating behavior fundamentally and about establishing consistency in the way that you operate in the world, sort of regardless of circumstance. And I think that an approach to motivation when you're in a depressive cycle is relatively similar. You don't want to do the thing, but you create a system that supports you in doing the thing anyway. There is a lot of great stuff out there on building effective habits. We've done some episodes on topics related to that in the past. So I won't get kind of too in the weeds about it here. For me, I like visual things. I like checklists. I like a little piece of paper that I printed out semi-recently that says every day I do really simple stuff. And it's really important that it's really simple and it's really easy. So it's 15 minutes of reading. How hard is it to read for 15 minutes? Not very. It's sit outside. How hard is it to sit outside? You know, just various things. It's exercise, some form of physical activity. It doesn't have to be go to the gym. just has to be move my body in some way that I can credibly describe as being relatively athletic. And by checking off those relatively low-grade things, I get to feel accomplished at some level, kind of regardless of what else happens in the day. I can have a pretty crappy day But if I check my four or five or six boxes of very basic, simple activities, I get to look at that at the end of the day and go, I accomplished something. And I think that one of the ways out of a depressive mood cycle is around feeling accomplished. One of the major things that we talked about in part one as being a real feature of depression is a feeling of worthlessness. So what can we do internally to buff up our positive sense of self-regard? And I think that that's one way into it is through accomplishment and through finding little ways in the course of a day to feel accomplished. That's great. Totally great. Um, Kind of built into
1: what you said uh, is this idea of do the little thing that will help you do the bigger thing. Absolutely. Which will then help you do the biggest things of all. I think that's really, really helpful. And included in that, don't expect an immediate reward.
0: Mm, Yeah, In other words,
1: Arrange the flowers and put them on the table, mm-hmm. even if you don't feel anything. Yeah, Make the bed, even if you don't feel anything, make yourself a good meal. Make yourself a good lunch, sit down, eat the lunch, put on some music, read a book, even if you don't feel anything. Take care of your personal appearance without getting weird about it, you know, brush your hair. <laughs> Pick a shirt or blouse, what have you, that you like or you used to like, Mm -hmm. uh, you would like if you weren't depressed, but you know you used to like, Totally, put it on. These little things can really, really make a difference for people.
0: This may sound kind of trite, but particularly for someone who is really struggling with a truly severely depressed mood, perhaps even one that's verging on a form of self-harming, there is actually something to be said for simply going through the motions. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of what you're describing here. Even if you don't really feel like it's getting you anywhere, even if you're not deriving any particular value from it, just keeping the basic operational motor of your life chugging at the level of keep the room relatively neat, make sure you eat enough, arrange the flowers, brush your hair, put on the shirt, whatever it might be, just those little things can be enough to at least nudge you in the direction of not taking, you know, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Oh, exactly. And also to remember, people come out of
1: depressive episodes and it's good to know that you're going to come out of that depressive episode eventually and to have maintained the foundations of your life meanwhile. Another major intervention for depression that I briefly alluded to is cognitive therapy. Lots of research there. So one classic intervention for depression is cognitive behavioral therapy. So the behavior part is around activations of various kinds. And then the cognitive part is addressing belief systems of various kinds. And implicit in all that is the installation phase of the taking in the good model in which somehow we help those experiences through behavioral activation or through cognitive methods actually sink in and produce some kind of lasting value. So cognitive therapies for depressed mood include things like, essentially, uh, and people could do it on their own, draw a line down the middle of a page on the left-hand column, right, wrong thought, <laughs> and list something like, I'm no good, no one will love me. I'll always be depressed. The kids would be better off without me. Whatever it might be, you know, list that that wrong thought. And then in the right-hand column, three or more true rebuttals that you believe, including rebuttals that have to do with the ways in which the so-called wrong thoughts are often unqualified. They describe situations that are always going to be the case in every possible way but in fact most of the things that we have depressogenic beliefs about pathogenic beliefs about are passing and partial they are a small picture part they are a small part of the big picture and a lot of the cognitive therapeutic methods play up on that fact and detail here, you might want to look into, I believe it's David Burns has the Feeling Good Handbook, which is just a classic full of all kinds of, you know, sheets and methods and things you can do. Cognitive therapeutic methods are amazingly powerful. They're kind of annoying that they're so powerful, but the key is you have to do them typically with a lot of repetition. And then along the way with these cognitive methods, I would really encourage people to explore the conviction factor of installation. In other words, what I mean by that little short mouthful is that you can list your rebuttals, if you like, to the depressogenic thoughts, but if you don't believe your rebuttals, if you don't have conviction about them, if you don't have faith in them, different ways of saying the same thing, they're not gonna be very effective. And so what you want to do when you're grappling with these uh, cognitive methods is to really help it sink in. Yes, this is true. Yes, this is the truth I'm going to hold on to. I'll finish it off. I'll just give you a little weird example. Forrest, have you, you, I don't believe you've ever repelled in the mountains where you lean backwards over a cliff, your worst nightmare hanging onto a rope that's a centimeter in diameter, a third of an inch in diameter that kind of stretches like a rubber band and Mm -hmm. slide down 100 feet. I've taken hundreds of people, as you know, rock climbing and and done rappelling with them as kind of a personal growth experience. And the key here is that to do it correctly, to make it work, safely included, goes 100% against your natural instinct. So what you have to do is you have to lean back and essentially become increasingly perpendicular to the cliff, which is to say, you know, it's vertical. That means that you're kind of horizontal or leaning in that direction, totally counterintuitive. And you have to allow the rope to release through your hands or your braking device to do it at all. And I've had many moments with people where they're at the edge and understandably they're freaking out. And I essentially say to them, look at me, <laughs> you know, do what I say. Remember that other people have done this. You've seen them do it. Trust your device. It makes logical sense. Look at me. Focus on the 1% of your consciousness that understands what you need to do and ignore the 99% of the rest. In some sense, doing effective cognitive therapy is like that. You want to focus in on what you know to be true, even if it's just 1% of your consciousness and take refuge there.
0: So that's a great set of interventions for managing feelings of depressed mood inside of yourself. Of course, we're not the only people who might experience a depressed mood. There are many people around us, including loved ones, who might be going through similar experiences. And if you think about it, we're actually more likely to interact with other people's depressed mood through the course of our lives than we are with our own. So we've alluded to this a little bit through the course of this episode and the previous one, but to kind of coalesce it a little bit, maybe particularly by looking at a family dynamic, because that's one of the things we've really been sort of touching on a little bit. What can we do to help other people who might be experiencing their own depressed mood? Yeah, I think this goes back to that loose
1: categorization of three classes of causes, factors for depression, namely out in the world, in the body, in the mind. And if you have an opportunity with a friend or a loved one To help them, one of the places to start, frankly, is external factors that are wearing them down, that are creating stress or fatigue, or are disrupting forms of self-care and self-nurturance over time. Including, for example, in the classic uh, case of, a uh, let's say, a mother who's depressive, time for her for half an hour to an hour a day that she is recharging her battery bank and just for her and the world is leaving her alone, whatever it might be. So paying attention to doing everything you can as an ally uh, for the person who's depressed to decrease the negative factors coming at them from the world and increase positive ones. The second thing is to really, really, really pay attention to body. One of the things I've seen that happens is that people develop depressed mood because they have a physiological condition of some kind. But their depressed mood, as you were saying earlier, Forrest, gets in the way of them taking action to deal with their physiological condition. They put off one day at a time going to see a doctor. They don't want to think about it. It's too much trouble to navigate the healthcare system they're dealing with. And yet that doesn't help. And on and on it goes. So helping people with their physiological conditions, making them meals that have protein in the meals of one kind or another, helping them drive to appointments, helping them navigate health insurance. Things like that can be really, really, really useful. Mentioning that, for example, even if a person doesn't want to do prescription medication, that there's actually reasonably good evidence of various sources that for particularly dysthymic disorder or mild depression, that supplementation with either tryptophan or 5-hydroxytryptophan, which are the precursors to serotonin, uh, which is a major neurochemical in the brain, can actually have some help. So this is not about playing doctor yourself or making people do things with regard to their physical health that they may not want or they might resist, but rather taking that into account. Also now, now I'm going to focus more on the mental aspect of this, uh, being nurturing and in ways that are not controlling and critical, helping a person internalize these experiences of social connection. Social support is really helpful. So just slowing it down for them to have a, a chance to experience that you're a friend to them while paying attention to the pitfalls that suddenly now they might feel guilty about what a burden they are on other people or how, if they really reveal how bad they feel, uh, no one will want to be with them because they'll seem needy or dependent or like some kind of vortex of demand. And, you know, to really help people get past that. No, I love you. I care for you. I'm your friend. I'm your, you know, family member. I'm on your side. Uh, You're not going to suck me dry. Fear not. Uh, I'm going to do what I can for you, and I'm going to take care of myself along the way so I can keep doing reasonably and realistically what I can for you. And meanwhile, it's okay. It's okay with me that you're depressed. I'm not going to abandon you or criticize you because you're depressed. And we've got a problem here. (laughs) Let's roll up our sleeves and get to it. And I'm on your side and we are not going to be defeated. And we're going to get down this mountain together before it gets dark. (laughs) And that feeling that you've got someone with you, right? I go back to uh, the Lord of the Rings and, and Sam and Frodo. If you're Frodo and you're depressed about the terribleness of your mission, you really want to know that Sam's your wingman. Sam's going to be with you every step of the way, no matter what. So that's a big thing we can offer people and and don't underestimate that. Also, be really clear about um, helping a person find psychotherapy and make sure that the mental health resources in their life are scaled up to the level of the issue. And that's where sometimes you help them make that first appointment. Maybe you go with them. Maybe you sit in the waiting room. Maybe you grind through the Yelps (laughs) on various therapists. Maybe you look for referrals for them. But you kind of prime the pump. These are some of the good things you can do. Awesome.
0: I think that's a great list of interventions, both for us ourselves and to help the people around us who may be important to us. We could spend a lot more time, I'm sure, on these topics. We've already spent a lot of time uh, between part one and part two. This is going to be one of the more thorough treatments we've ever done of a topic on the podcast. And the reality is that we're really only scratching the surface here in terms of the interventions that are available to people, the ways you can interact with something as both broad and specific as clinical depression, and just in general, the amount of information that is available out there through even something as simple as a Google search or a Wikipedia page. That said, I think that we've done, you know, the best that we can reasonably do inside of this part of the episode. And I would like to kind of bring us to a close here. So today we explored what we can do inside of ourselves and in helping other people about depressed mood, broadly speaking. You explored three primary areas that we have to intervene in a person that is out in the world, the experiences that we have in our physical body through our physiology, and then in our minds psychologically. Neither of us are a psychiatrist, so we treated the physiology with some care of those versions, acknowledged the importance of dealing with challenging circumstances out in the world, and then spent the bulk of our time focusing on psychology, what we can do inside the mind. Some of the things that we touched on included the power of simple mindfulness, mindfully experiencing our state, of interacting with those pains at the most basic level of being with them rather than trying to directly change them in the moment if that's either too painful or too challenging, and the benefits that a person can experience with a consistent mindfulness practice over time. We also talked about the usefulness of versions of the taking in the good process for taking external positive experiences and turning them into lasting internal traits. This, of course, comes with some challenges, particularly for people who are severely clinically depressed, as it becomes very challenging to identify and stay with positive external experiences. Rick then shared some kind of higher-grade ways to intervene that were maybe a little bit more active in nature. These include being physical, going out into the world, sustaining a consistent basis of habits that can build the experience of being effective or useful, and also contributing in some way toward other people. Again, building up that sense of being effective and useful. Finally, we ended with some useful ways that you can help the people around you emerge from their depressed mood state if they happen to be in it. So I think that's the best that I can do at the moment for a summary. We explored a lot of material, so I'm sorry if I forgot any of it. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and hey, maybe even leave a positive rating and review. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.